peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial birth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Organize everything here. Greetings, namaste, and shalom. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am your host, the Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. It is my pride and pleasure and a privilege to be doing so. Thank you all very much for those tuning in. I'll give it a couple of minutes as people filter in. Remember, you can follow me, all my updates on my podcast website, podpage dot com slash beyond top secret texan you can follow me through social media currently my flagship social media is instagram with over 4,000 posts videos from evidence from the dark web evidence from my own personal stash uh, it's where i publish all of my work really so definitely check out instagram you can find that at beyond top secret texan all one word and definitely check out Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. It's the only link you're ever going to need. Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. All one word, lowercase. That'll bring you directly towards my directory of links and active platforms. Right? A lot of people have a lot of links that I used to use that are no longer active. For example, my Patreon, down, old TikTok, taken down. All that good shit. But whenever I have a new one, it's all current, it's all updated, it's on Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. All one word, all lowercase. They call it the only link you're ever going to need, and I agree. I love that little, little useful slice of the web. There's not many useful slices of the web nowadays. Not the surface web, and definitely not dark web anymore deep web is gone darknet is gone funded by the fbi from the very beginning but at least it used to be fun and wild west like and uh very cyberpunk in and very like fucking um testing of man and machine and, and all that good shit but of course the future is much like the past and all things in time are irrelevant and forgotten and fall into oblivion and obscurity and become part of the greater mystery of human history that we like to call reality. One such of those phenomena, and it's not really quite because it's a hybrid, it's a hybrid of this phenomena of dark web 
and surface web content was 4chan. I use was 4chan because 4chan is kaput. It is kaput. It is uh, not the same. Completely tore up from the floor up when it comes to the administration, the jannies, the uh, bullshit infiltration by bots, testing from universities, uh, infiltration by the feds, the glowies, um, the killing of good threads, and the infiltration and, and proliferation of agenda uh, 2030 threads, and like, um, you know, uh, just just dumb fucking uh, politics and infighting. And it always was stupid, and it always was absurd, and it always was the internet hate machine, but at least it was real. At least it used to be a good 99% real people that were, you know, anonymously posting what was legitimately on their mind. And I'm someone who remember those days well. They were very recent, but at the same time now, paradoxically, like one of those hybrid things. 10 years, 15 years. Is that a long time ago? Is that, like, honestly, as a question, you can type it into the comment bar and everything. It, what What is a long time ago? And what constitutes uh, being long important? I think it's like a ratio, where if it's like 10 years, 15 years, even if it was something really important, like the birth of your child, or, uh, you know, the death of a, a very significant other, or a loss of a very significant other, or a very momentous historical occurrence. Is 15 years a long time ago to have started and then to have evolved into a natural progression where it doesn't exist anymore, at least not in the same incarnation or mean the same thing to you, or at least it shouldn't be like something that's remembered because it happened uh, at a significant time? I think yeah, South Park said 25 years for something to be from tragedy to, to funny you can make fun of it and I think AIDS was the thing that they chose to make fun of they were like oh it's 25 years and it's like yeah we can make fun of it now that was an episode South Park did I think it was 25 years the arbitrary token date where things don't like, hold the importance or the significance anymore to you because you have that objective distance so forgive me as a 35 year old man for fondly and, and nostalgically looking back about 15 years to 10 years ago on the internet and being like, man, we had it fucking good. Because we did. We had it fucking good. Now, it didn't go quietly, and it didn't go out like that. It went out over stages and over years. And so by 20... This is posted 2017. The uh, posts I'm going to read the thread... I'm going to read you guys from the old uh, cellular device here. It, what was this? It was posted 2015. Right? So, 2015. Um, seven years ago? Seven years is a long time for uh, this disclosure to have been posted and this disclosure is the game plan for international politics 
for between the New World Order and the BRICS nations, fourth generational war. That's the mosaic and pro and hybrid war, the fourth generation warfare strategies that they were privileged to because they were part of it. They were insiders, and they they uh, posted this anonymously in 2015 because they had already seen the cards that the West and the East well BRICS is kind of like the all over right the the North and the South the Third World and the First World seen the cards that were being played and it's a game plan that has its roots in a strategy called the New American Century now the New American Century was the hegemonies of the neoliberal New World Order's uh, attempt to steamroll over what it felt was its greatest opposition, the OPEC nations, in terms of uh, a surgical strike at their leadership and the use of fourth-generational warfare, which is information warfare, which is propaganda, which is psychological operations, which is assassinations, both uh, character and physical, the setting up of riots, the color revolutions, the uh, strategic use of the Navy uh, and the Air Force to deliver covert strikes, special forces, etc., as well as the establishments of invasion, or at least grounds for legal invasion between NATO nations and interventions like that. Think Libya. Libya was a fourth-generational war, the Arab Spring, Syria, late stage uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, definitely fourth generational wars. Now, and, and then the entire global war on terror, entire global war on terror was fourth generational. First war of democracy, that's um, however you want to call it, that is, um, that is absolutely a fourth generational war. And you can argue that they existed in the 90s, that that, that was transitional in the 90s as well. But um, much more covert People don't know that Bill Clinton bombed Iraq a lot. I think that's fucking crazy. I think that's fucking crazy. That people don't know Bill Clinton bombed Iraq like throughout the uh, the uh, 90s. That he was launching tomahawks like into Iraq to destroy their infrastructure almost weekly. As well as um, the bombing of Yugoslavia and, and uh, Herzegovina and things like that. Oh no, uh, just we got some comments there. Rogue status. I remember you as a long time uh, follower and listener. No, I went off comms because YouTube had put two strikes on my channel and it lasted for 120 days. And so to be perfectly safe in, in broadcasting, because you can't really do so with one strike even nowadays um, on your record, because they can hit you when you're least expected and you're producing content, say, this strike, this, say, this, this broadcast gets a strike, right? And if I had another strike on there from, from 120 days ago, but it wasn't taken care of, then, yeah, it would have been two strikes, and then that would have been in jeopardy. Uh, 
and I don't want to risk all the previous past content, this, the nearly 600 videos that I've created for this channel. Um, you know, I'm not going... I know when to um, tactically uh, make a rearward advance. You know, <laughs> I, know when, I know when to rally and to, uh, and to fight another day. But, uh, no, I'm not going to leave the battlefield, um, you know, until the fight is done. But I've already made my predictions uh, earlier today on a live stream that I think, ultimately, they're just going to pull YouTube. Like, they're just going to take it offline, and then they're going to make some excuse that, like, the servers were destroyed or something, and then just start again with a blank slate. And that no matter what we've done, no matter what we've done, everyone's amateur content for the last, uh, you know, 15 years will be just erased in a blink of an eye, and that's the, the, it going dark, you know, back to the Stone Ages, back to the Dark Ages, and it will just be a massive demoralizing uh, thing, and no one will really ever trust uh, putting their hard-earned time and effort and videos and content onto you know, a server they don't control, and, and, exactly, you know, like, uh, it, it's, they got all the power, YouTube has 100% of the power, and I'm surprised I've made it this far, but yeah, sometimes you gotta be strategic about shit, and you just gotta fall back into the bush, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, you gotta go rogue, you gotta spider out, you know, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> You gotta bunker down, exactly. And it's just like, um, exactly. It's just, you gotta just fight that way. And, you know, you're just winning that way. You know, I'm not losing, I'm just winning this way. You gotta go Vietnam on them. And so, yeah, you gotta, you gotta go I mean, it's, it's, I don't hate these, I don't hate on them. And you guys gotta learn from them. And then, hell, if I can, yeah, you know, if the U.S. Army was ever in some shit, they'd be. Pulling out the North Vietnamese playbook and shit. <laughs> like, dig, dig those fucking tunnels. <laughs> fucking tunnels. Get on the bike. <laughs> Get on the bike. It's not really that. Uh, if I can have the shit at the van, you know America would pull out those fucking bikes. <laughs> Now, but I'm going to be reading this thread because the CIA agent, which, um, or ex-CIA agent at the time, the whistleblower who wrote this and posted it, uh, did so when their focus at the time, 2015, was 100% political. And I'm speaking with an insider knowledge on this, and that's as far as I will say as to that regard but this former CIA asset special agent um, with naval history posted in 2015 to 4chan's ex-paranormal board a very very favored of his or hers or they or them or zers forums online like all special agents they couldn't keep a secret <laughs> they just you know they love telling people exactly what the fuck is going on special agents love that shit 
Who are you? Bond. James Bond. Really? You don't even try to lie? You don't even try to tell them that you're not James Bond? I was waiting for someone to ask me the hell I was. I was standing here for a couple hours. Legs are starting to hurt. No, but, um, in all seriousness, um, yeah, we're going to be reading this thread that he posted about the game plan for generational warfare house and we play it out compared to the New World Order strategy against the BRICS nations, right? Now, remember in 2015, these were much different times, much different times, with many different factors operating and intersecting at the same time, producing unique and significant results. And in one of these results was a pronounced clarity, but also a massive amount of remorse and regret. I imagine and assume. And as a psychologist, can almost accurately predict, as that was the motivating factor for who was writing this. You can read it in the words. But yes, without further ado, let's get into it. This is a ex-CIA agent's post to 4chan about the fourth generational warfare strategies about to play out when at the time it was written in 2015. So listen close about the predictions and see how eerily close they were. The the poster, even though this is an anonymous board, decided to use the handle leader. Leader. I've acted in some capacity as a political advisor for a certain think tank and some local analyst by proxies. While I haven't got access to privileged information, I have some connections to peace information back together. I've been most impressed with the ability of you guys to piece things together, and I was surprised to see you dig as far as I have. What I'm going to say is going to sound like an intro to a new Metal Gear Solid game, but whatever. Let's get rolling. Geopolitical Censorship Gamergate and You Part 1 The Cold War is Back Now some of you might be from Pole, so you'll be immediately familiar with what I have to say, but for completeness, I'll introduce you to the reasons why the Cold War is back with a vengeance. It all began back in 2006, when the SCO acted to attack the U.S. dollar due to failed attempt by the U.S. to implement the new Middle East plan via the war in Lebanon. At this point, should the U.S. have done anything else, it would have forced and faced a certain run on its currency. The neocons under Bush and Cheney then plotted the Georgian War, which was meant to put Russian face-to-face with NATO forces in Georgia. This plan blew up in the face the moment Russians threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons in Georgia should NATO remain in their positions. The planners hope that, with Putin in China for the Olympics, Russia will let the Georgian attack on South Ossetia slide. They didn't, and we all know what happened next. 
What isn't widely advertised is that NATO effectively struck back, flooding the Black Sea with vessels, essentially cutting off Russians' Crimean port from safe access to the Mediterranean. That's when a certain character, who was probably unknown to you at the time, stepped in. One Bashir Assad opened the Tartarus port, the Black Sea fleet effectively burning NATO's card as the Russian fleet can safely amass in the Mediterranean Sea using the port offered to him by Syria. After this series of failures, confidence in the United States geostrategy collapsed, and with it, confidence of the United States dollar-U.S. stock market collapsed as well. We all know what happened in September, and with that, the neocon team was officially out the door, leading to a Democrat becoming president. Part 2. Enter Obama. While the neocons screwed up on the international scene, the establishment had been busy brewing up Plan B months earlier. It was a hot race between Obama and Clinton, with the latter strangely holding on to the race despite the guaranteed defeat she faced. At the time, Clinton had hinted that she was sticking in the race just in case something was to happen to Obama. Some strong indications that sabotage may be on the table existed, but two days after the alleged power broker meeting at the Bilderberg 2008 group, Hillary pulled out of the election. Obama himself ran a social media campaign in order to appear to be a grassroots contender. Many diehard Obama fans believe that they still own whatever he does and decides which is why they can never fault his actions. At this time, the establishment was fixated on social media as it seemed to be a far easier way to sway people than traditional media that had lost credibility thanks to the war in Iraq. Trying their luck, a crude attempt was made to create a civil war in Iran back in 2009 via the Green Revolution, but this failed due to Iran's internet censorship apparatus. But it was an important event to note a learning experience for the CIA. Control the internet, control the people. At the time, the Russians were wooed into a cozier relationship with the U.S. and the new face of Obama in power and agreed to a reset in relationships. It was important to keep Russia hanging on for the most part, not knowing that the SCO will continue to undermine the U.S. dollar. During 2009 and 2010, Obama campaigned around the Middle East, garnering a lot of support from radical Muslims. These Muslims were convinced that Obama was some kind of secret Muslim agent. Quote, he isn't. And he gained the United States' trust and support of many OPEC and ex-terrorist organizations, such as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. These relationships persist until today and the formation and operation of ISIS. This is an important point for the next part. Part 3. Pride cometh before a fall. By the end of 2009 and the start of 2010, the SCO was pure of the imminent victory. With gold bug rumors all around and the U.S. dollar and economy rapidly declining, they asked for all kinds of concessions behind closed doors. 
They pressed the United States to give Russia and China more say in the operation of the World Bank, the International Monetary Found Fund, or Foundation, and the United States Security Commission. This was all while the China expanded projects in North Africa and Sudan and Libya. Libya was acting as a donor state to other African countries at the time due to Gaddafi's African Union and later gold dinar strategy. The United States was not budging. Convincing that they had the United States in a bind and that the United States under Obama could not act in an aggressive way in the international scene as expanded or as it overextended on two war fronts and expanded loose alliance under the name BRICS met to discuss a gold-backed currency for international settlements. This currency was essentially means of undermining the United States dollar as a stable reference used to sign off on pricing agreements between nations, mainly on supplies of energy, which are signed over many years. The United States dollar is one of the most important assets available to the United States, besides the military, so this would have delivered a death blow to the United States' ability to project power internationally and specifically in the Middle East. Calm as ever, the United States diplomats refused to give much attention to the fleshy moves made by Russia and China. The Chinese are brilliant at martial arts. The Russians are geniuses when it comes to chess, but when it comes to poker, you just can't beat a poker-faced cowboy with crude logic or physical strength. The enemies of the United States were prematurely celebrating their victory, while the United States was readying itself to deliver a coup de grace. Part 4. Social Media. A Weapon of Mass Destruction. Having learnt from the failed Green Revolution in Iran in 2009, a much lower revolt was brewed on social media, one that only North Africans paid close attention to, the Tunisian Revolution. All the face of it, this one made no sense. Unlike in Iran, the ruling party in Tunisia at the time had strong connections to the United States and there was no logical reason for the United States to want it out of power. But this isn't about logic. This is about emotions. Specifically, the emotions of the Arab Muslim populations in North Africa and the decision-making process of rulers around the world. The leaked United States embassy cables were extremely embarrassing to the Tunisian government as it detailed United States-Tunisia anti-terrorism cooperation that many of its mostly banned Muslim Brotherhood offshoots such as the AQM saw as treachery. Whether it was decided to deliberately leak these cables or not cannot be proven. What is undeniable is that they lit the fire that started the Arab Spring in 2010. By the middle of January 2011, the ruling party in Tunisia collapsed under waves of mostly Islamists and useful idiots helping them in riots. Days later, longtime United States and Israeli Egyptian ally Mubarak came under a similar, far more coordinated social media attack, congregating around accounts such as JN25VOSCS and others, the Twitter and Facebook spheres encouraged mass demonstrations in Cairo and other cities. 
the Egyptian government pulled the plug on the internet, but this backfired thanks to the kind of stress or Streisand effect where an act of mass censorship only makes a public revolt worse. The whole world was watching Al Jazeera and similar channels and celebrating when Mubarak start down after Obama asked him to. Russia and China did not understand how to read this move. They assumed the United States was attempting to reestablish allied nations. Iran was ecstatic, knowing that an Islamist government will inevitably come into power now that the military-run government had collapsed under the wave of a popular revolution. Knowing that Egypt has a long-time United States ally, they concluded that social media attack against the Egyptian government was grassroots-based and not a CIA or United States infiltration. This couldn't be further from the truth, and underestimating the United States intelligence apparatus would cost all these states dearly in the decade to come. The Muslim Brotherhood was now aligned with the United States and was simply carrying out the original plans from 2006 that started the coordinated attack against the United States dollar. In February 17th, simultaneously, days of rage were announced in Syria and Libya. The Syrian Day of Rage fizzled out thanks to then-strong security apparatuses that monitored the Internet and preempted all security breaches with force. Libya was a different matter. It almost immediately escalated further into armed conflict where the army had split into a civil war. The United States and France brought a humanitarian proposal to the UNSC to force a no-fly zone on Libya that Russia and China de facto accepted. France immediately broke the terms of the resolution to attack the Libyan army on the ground and destroy the infrastructure of the communities. Barely sobering up from its celebrations, China left North Africa with its tail between its legs as its greatest ally lay in ruin. Its Russian friends let it down by abstaining from putting in military force, even prohibiting the Wagner Group from being hired by Gaddafi, and not putting any pressure on France, its then ally. It was in fact in Russia's interest to allow China to take the fall as it would force to align more strongly with Russia on its own terms. But Russia didn't have long to laugh, as it would meet its fate soon, too. Reorganizing the social media campaign and suddenly arming the protesters, the civil war in Syria was restarted with a massive social media campaign on March 15th. This delay from February 17th until March 15th gave Syria enough time to study the dynamics of the situation. The government there concluded that censoring the internet would backfire as it did in Libya and in Egypt. The conclusion, the only way to keep things under control was to monitor the internet and use any means to de-anonymize the internet and to work with the ringleaders of the revolt to those who communicate with foreign agents. This is a very important point when it comes next, so keep that in mind. We could go in on details of the Arab Spring, but let's zoom past that and just come to the conclusion that matters to us today. While things look bad in Syria right now, remember this is 2015, and you can use that right now for the Ukraine, you can use that right now for uh, Israel, 
whatever whatever immediate proxy warfare is looking bad at the time, which is right now uh, Ukraine. Well, things are looking bad right now in Syria, proxy Ukraine. No one can deny that the governments of the world still in firm control of the majority of populated areas with Islamists holding on to mostly outlying desert areas and government-aligned forces gradually cutting them off and closing in. The Egyptian military ejected the Muslim Brotherhood out of Egypt using counter-social media campaign that was extremely successful. Russia immediately moved back in to make up with the Egyptian military who felt betrayed by the United States after the Arab Spring. Though the United States was much better shaped than it was in 2006, Russia and China could still recover from the Arab Spring, could still take down the U.S. dollar if they worked together. This is when things started escalating seriously. Part 5. Escalation. By the end of 2012, things were going south for Obama's administration. Facing an election and various controversies such as the Benghazi scandal, which was simply Fast and Furious 2, Middle East and North Africa, they had to drop Clinton and give her time to lick her political wounds. The Muslim Brotherhood connections were widely exposed by the Republican Party, which indeed had their own connections to terrorist groups in the Middle East. By March 2013, the war in Syria had been turned around and the Muslim Brotherhood was losing badly. To cut a long story short, a chemical weapon attack was faked and the U.S. attempted to enter the war directly in September. The U.S. population was completely against it and due to behind closed door promises of actions by Russia towards Europe, specifically the United Kingdom, the U.S. administration was isolated. The social media mechanizations that were used to launch Arab Spring were long discredited in the eyes of those spreading information and Obama slash Kerry were not able to convince the masses of the narrative at the time. An attempt was made to launch kinetic strikes against Syria, but according to my information, these were apparently shot down by Russian seaborne anti-missile defense systems in port of Syria. It doesn't matter what actually happened. But in the end, the United States had to concede to Russia, who offered a way out of the mass, uh, the mess of Obama's creation cross-concession. The U.S. agrees to stop funding the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria and refrains from threats to the Syrian military, which weakens their readiness against local battles, and Syria hands over its chemical weapons and other WMDs. This was aligned with U.S. regional objectives, so it was an offer Obama couldn't publicly refuse. Plan C was then set into motion. The Ukraine scenario. Failing to force the Russian Black Sea fleet out of its Tartarus port, the plan was set into motion to force it out of the Black Sea itself, rendering it worthless as Tartarus was a small port and wasn't connected directly to Russian military industry. Using social media again and long-harbored misgivings in Ukraine, the U.S. State Department launched a $5 billion campaign to take down the neutral regime in Ukraine and replace it with a U.S.-aligned regime. Before this could happen, the Russians leaked out damning phone calls detailing plans in Ukraine with United States politicians. Though the establishment media made a good attempt at suppressing the leak, this made big tractions in social media 
and they had no choice but to report on them. The coup was delayed to cope with the narrative fallout, but happened a few days later. Russia overestimated the importance of the narrative, but the U.S. noted how to disrupt the leak was the timetable. The EU, the European Union, and the United States were euphoric. Without Ukraine, Russia could never be a strong power, according to the intellectual Brzezinski. Russia was then forced to act in a manner that could destroy its public relationships and its PR image. Russian troops stationed in Crimea had to invade, aided by special forces that infiltrated all government sections with the support of most of the local population. They took over Crimea without firing a single bullet. Though not ideal, this was just the incident needed by the U.S. to turn around the good faith among people Russia had been brewing on the Internet for years. Part 6. Background. Preparing the Narrative. During the preparation for strikes in Syria, the U.S. government repealed a long-held law to avoid local propaganda. It's important to note that law is only for propaganda directed at American citizens within American borders, rather than propaganda for foreigners in PSYOPs. While the law was only for state-funded media, the evidence of top-down control by the White House and Attorney Governor at the very least is out in the open. But despite this, the government knew now the majority of people distrusted mass media, the Internet posed a difficult problem should an extremely unpopular action be used to catalyze its civil strife. Both the Arab Spring and the coup in Ukraine utilized a powerful weapon, social media. When one creates a weapon, they're usually also working on its counter. A year after the attempted coup in Iran in 2009, an attempt was made by Joe Lieberman and the other senators to introduce an Internet kill switch through Congress and Senate. Various excuses were made for the proposal, but the only reasonable one was a fear of a nationwide revolt where people used the Internet as a weaponized platform for communicating for forces meant for social revolution, revolts, and civil war. But the plan was flawed as seen in the Arab Spring. The Tunisian government enacted a crude form of internet kill switch and the government still fell. Egypt's permanent enacted a or Egypt's government enacted a more robust kill switch, knocking out all electricity, and it also fell. The only state that avoided using an internet kill switch was Syria. And the government is still in power. It was clear that simply jamming a signal would not calm people down and that any attacks on their freedoms would provoke them to revolution. Certainly not in the United States where people are largely sedated through internet-born entertainment and various other technologies. Needless to say, the internet kill switch plan was shelved. Something more subtle was required. Part 7. The Censorship Mechanization 
months before the fake chemical weapons attack in Syria, an important event occurred that most geopolitical analysts have misinterpreted. The Snowden surveillance leaks. These concerned with foreign policies said that Snowden, being originally a CIA agent, was still working for them and was attempting to brew bad relations with either Russia or China, where he originally escaped to. The theory is patently false. The leaks were far heavier and had much larger shit in public perception than relatively simple and lower classification embassy cable leaks. The Snowden leaks were all top secret or beyond top secret, sorry, above top secret, and been hugely damaging to the NSA and SIGINT organizations around the world. As an important aside, it had no effect on humans organizations such as the CIA that have different and more traditional and arguably more reliable means of collecting information and ensuring OPSEC. Those concerned with domestic policy were too busy reacting to the leaks and disdain to really understand the purposes behind them. The information that was leaked detailed the general idea behind decrypting secure communications, splicing undersea cables, and mass surveillance on all populations, but it did not really go into the specifics, something that foreign governments and terrorists would definitely benefit from. Whether Snowden deliberately leaked only those details as a ruse or only had access to those details that he siphoned off the NSA is unknown. What matters, though, is how the leaks affected the population's behavior. To be specific, the chilling effect it caused. Knowing you are constantly monitored changes the way you behave. It forces you to restrict the topics they are willing to discuss or willing to show you. You should know this well, as the social justice warrior's weapon of choice is doxing, available information. Exposing people's true identity brings all the consequences of their institutional and employment mechanizations from online discourse into the real world, making the virtual world just as real as the real world. As the ongoing disclosure by the corrupt Guardian newspaper star Glenn Greenwald reveal more and more about mass surveillance, there is one certain outcome, normalization. People have now largely accepted the surveillance and a few more intelligent people have moved on to encrypted communications, but those are surveilled as well. But conversing with each other is useless when we want to get a word out, what's really required is anonymity in social media. This is the element that allows a revolt to take place, whether against game journalism or a sudden unpopular ruling regime. Anonymity is currently required to go against the narrative where your very livelihood, i.e. your employment or legal status is threatened by your social media posts when the easily offended have power. Facebook took things one step further and added an algorithm where stories that are marked as fake are suppressed in a feed, not completely censored, just suppressed. This avoids bringing attention to an act of censorship and sidesteps the Streisand effect. 
As uh, far as the mechanizations go, the United Kingdom is in the lead with the Prime Minister labeling what he calls conspiracy theorists as non-violent extremists. Cameron is about to propose a new law to effectively ban online anonymity and privacy by banning point-to-point encryption. This won't fly in the United States, so Obama is proposing the same thing in a different way, encouraging businesses to essentially hand over private encryption keys, allowing the United States government to execute targeted man-to-man attacks and effectively decrypt all traffic. By the way, they are leading figures of the U.S. establishment fearing some sort of revolt. Things are great at the moment, but there's nothing really pushing people against to move the ruling class of oligarchs. This is where things get dark, and the background to all this begins to make sense. Part 8. The Background. Missiles of the Patriots. If you've noticed a reoccurring pattern so far, every plan that has been put forward has actually failed to achieve its objective. But there has always been contingency plans running parallel to catch up and continue the momentum. This is the normal way a learned strategist works, and though it's a slow and delicate process, no state can afford to work in a straight line. The United States is a total diplomatic and economic war with Russia, and Russia is losing militarily and diplomatic, diplomatically. Its latest loss in Cuba, Cuba and other traditional allies of Russia, such as Belarus, are not satisfied with its performance in the Middle East and are judging Russia by its ability to protect its own interests there. After all, if it fails to do so, What's the chance of it protecting should the U.S. turn its attention on them and utilize fourth-generational warfare against them, such as the Arab Spring? Can you imagine this in Latin America, Cuba, or Venezuela being invaded by the United States? What would Russia do? This is written in 2015. This was posted January 30th, 2015. This is true for BRICS as well. Their plan to effectively bankrupt the United States is ongoing and involves hoarding precious metals by closing energy trade using them. Russia and China have accumulated huge amounts of precious metals in the past few months and the rate is accelerating after deals made between Russia and Turkey to trade in gold bypassing United States sanctions. Russia is busy trying and largely failing to woo South Americans into allowing it to open a permanent naval base there. China may just succeed with that proposition. On the military side of things, both Putin and Obama have been increasingly bellicose in their statements. Obama has issued thinly veiled threats towards Russia regarding its actions in Ukraine. Surely a hot war between these powers could never break out. No one could survive a nuclear war after all, or so some claim. That is essentially what has been, thankfully, popularized by movies, but really has largely moved on. Despite their differences, all states share a primary goal, 
survival of the state. Survival of the majority of the people, i.e. the workers, is a secondary matter. What makes up a state? The elite, i.e. very wealthy. People of a nation that act as the brains, the intellectuals, the influencers, alongside their security apparatus, which acts as their nervous system and breeding stock. A nuclear war threatens the existence of both the state and the majority. However, anyone who has seen the devastation left behind from a civil war, such as in Syria, can attest to the fact that it is, if not as bad, worse sometimes for a population than surviving a nuclear bombing. Rather than face an external fourth-generation war, the nuclear option increasingly becomes attractive for any of the three states should they near economic collapse. Furthermore, a much weaker state such as Russia has no other alternatives when facing the conventional might of a nation such as the United States with NATO allies. Then, in its immediate escalation to a nuclear war, it is threatened a few months in advance after intercepting, say, missiles launched at its border. But launching a nuclear war to avoid a civil one currently has non-negotiable and devastating consequences. Let me make one thing clear. I don't think nuclear war is likely in the short term at least. Neither does any of the states involved or any of the agencies I have worked with. But even a small and growing likelihood must be accounted for in game theory. The in-game conditions will affect the decisions made right now and to be completely informed about the real reasons for moves in the future. You must be aware of the win condition of a state and the different threats it faces on a battlefield. Remember, this is 2015, January 30th, 2015. Immediately after this individual posted this, they began a limited nuclear engagement, also with neutron bombs, cluster bombs, and other exotic munitions in Yemen under the operation of the campaign operation of Saudi Arabia against Yemen and the Houthi rebels with technology given to them by the United States, the EU, and Israel. After a remarkable peace treaty had been made with members of the UAE, OPEC, and various Western nations after this. Remember, this is 2015, so it's a little bit before the actual nuclear strikes, the actual atomic weapon strikes and WMD usage by Western and NATO powers in the Middle East and um, without having to edit and go back in Monday Night Quarterback, I mean, obviously 2015 was a very long time ago. <laughs> nuclear weapons were tactical nukes were used in the Ukraine they were used in the Ukraine uh, for the very situation that I had uh, described or this 
person had described, whoever they may be. I mean, I guess if it's a random disclosure, you know, it could as equally be myself as anyone else, and it could also equally not be myself. It's just a random pronoun at this point, right? Could be a woman, could be a, a midget, could be a, you know, alien, I don't know. Could be anybody. And, uh, you know, we'll leave it at that. But uh, they didn't know that there is actual nuclear tactical yields being deployed in the defense of Crimea when a covert tactical engagement, an expeditionary force, had landed between um, Ukraine regulars, the Azov Battalion, um, as special forces irregulars, and uh, NATO provided equipment that was estimated to be about three to five billion dollars worth of equipment and, and personnel, and um, the Russians vaporized them as they were coming up the road, like that. Literally, like they were literally driving and assembling up a road, a highway that goes to Crimea, and then the uh, Russians hit them with a tactical nuke that literally vaporized and then incapacitated the entire expeditionary unit. I think it was a convoy um, of some 40-odd, you know, armored vehicles and, and long-range multiple missiles launch systems and everything. But, um, tactical nukes that were already used in 2014. But we can't play Monday Night Quarterback and everything forever, right? We live, we learn, we love human things, right? Normal human things. I am normal and can be can be trusted with the mysteries of, of life. <laughs> I'm normal. Okay. Continued. Missiles of the Patriots. This is where the state of missile defense enters the equation. Without much fanfare, the United States restarts its ABM program at the end of 2001. What most weren't aware of, however, is that the Russians already had proven ABM systems that also utilizes the nuclear-tipped missiles, such as the SH-08, that can down most weapons around a certain parameter. Russia has also developed a new system, potentially a satellite killer, with an EKV, but with one paying attention to collective security agreements any longer, it was not made public. China made its EKV public in 2007 through a missile test. Russia is currently aiming to complete its S-500 program that is to have the ability to shoot down any space object, including hypersonic missile tests. Oh, sorry, hypersonic missiles by 2017. In most likelihood, as has been delayed several times, and due to the economic warfare faced by Russia, it may not be completed until 2019. I think, it, yeah, you can tell it's written in 2015, so it's kind of funny, right? Oh, yeah, it's the future from back then, but now it's the past from now. Similarly, the final phase of the U.S. ABM system will be completed around 2019 to 2020 going by program schedules. In parallel with missile defense, the Russians have been building up their nuclear stockpile, which now far exceeds that held by the United States in the West. 
Obama attempted to preempt this move with a very threatening executive order dealing with Russia's highly enriched uranium required to make three-stage nuclear devices and layman speak megaton city destroyers or czar bombas. Whatever he tried to do behind the scenes was largely failed and Russia has been acting in a more secretive way on alerting the West to the locations of its stockpiles as well as its research and development. I would also like to point out that it has an alliance with South Africa for its uranium, and it is definitely, definitely getting its uranium from there to make it sets. They call them Satan missiles. The Satan missiles are amazingly powerful, high yield weapons. Didn't know it at the time, know it now. In parallel with missile defense, the Russians, I guess I'm throwing out the pretext, I don't know what this is, right? In parallel with missile defense, the Russians have been building up their nuclear stockpile, which now far exceeds the held in the United States. Alongside its now larger nuclear stockpile, Russia successfully tested ABM-proof submarine-launched missiles. But even with these advantages and its Kaliningrad site outfitted with ABM-proof SS-26 Stone 92720 Iskander hypersonic missiles, the U.S. still holds the first strike advantage over Russia with its advanced radars and satellites. In terms of the outcome of such an exchange, the two states are held at parity, thanks mainly to Russia's perimeter, a.k.a. Dead Hand Automatic Retaliation System, developed in the Cold War. Some of those who have followed what I said so far checked the sources and concluded that I provided accurate information. Must be asking themselves, why haven't I heard all this before? Well... Can you imagine how people's priorities would change so that they become aware that they're facing a small but steadily increasing risk of nuclear warfare with Russia? This is where we move on to contingencies in play. For all scenarios, economic collapse, civil war, and the aftermath of a nuclear war. Part 9. The Threat Matrix when the survival of the majority is threatened by an internal or an external cause, the elite will act in a manner that protects them primarily and secondarily protects the majority until that majority begins to threaten the elites. Traditionally, at this point in time, the security apparatus is activated against the people and a civil war breaks out. Without outside support, the theory goes the security apparatus will win. Should the confrontation continue between the states and at the current rate of things are going that looks to be the case, eventually one or more of them will enter a state of effective bankruptcy. With the missile defense system coming up in 2019-2020, the decision makers in power will have at least the illusion of an unpunishable strike. But should the state accept its fate of bankruptcy as the Soviet Union did in the 1980s, it will ultimately face the civil war as consequence. Ideally, the state should hold both options as credible in order to be able to hold a nuclear option as a credible threat against the other states as well as means to avoid preemptive war when one of them is cornered and the likelihood of a confrontation goes to 100%. The dynamic is a problem in the United States due to the First and Second Amendments. The public is very well armed and there are good enough people who know how to use a weapon such that in the case of any confrontation they were able to not only defend themselves but confront those actively putting them and their families in harm's way. Thanks to the First Amendment, people can, in theory, be as informed as they want to be about current international and local events. 
the risks and opportunities they entail. People can be prepared and prepared together without legally facing persecution. And currently, people are uninformed, but the situation can revert to that of the 1980s, where the anti-war movement was large and vocal. (coughs) Sorry. It is thus important to keep people uninformed about the risks at play. With Obama casually saying he won't strike Russia and no one calling him out for hiding that he will and can. At the same time, it is important to demonize other states in order to settle the narrative for the population and to keep the threat at hand credible for infringing on their liberties. After all, the United States military is composed of the U.S. people and if the elites are seen driving the U.S. people to certain death over nothing but their own prerogative survival and profit, the military will refuse the unlawful orders or force them out of power in a coup. If, however, the accepted narrative is that of external state threatening the existence of the U.S. and behaving in an aggressive, irrational manner, such as North Korea, the military is compelled to go along with the propaganda with its population seizure and infringement of civil liberties, seeing them as potential spies, traitors, or saboteurs. We now enter speculative territory, but largely important to at least explore to see the bigger pictures at hand. In order to remove the threat of the First and Second Amendments, several elements have been launched simultaneously simultaneously by the elites to effectively wage psychological and economic warfare on the U.S. population and the Western Hemisphere in general. The economic means are obvious. By putting youths into debt and bringing foreign workers in mass to keep unemployment as high as possible, most people are too poor to be able to project their power in any meaningful way. The phenomenon of social justice warriors is likely a manifestation of these attempts at psychological warfare called social engineering. Instead of the majority of relatively poorer people taking those with a truly privileged position, the elite and wealthy, to task. The majority gets locked in a war amongst themselves. Male against female, black against white, and so on. A lukewarm civil war now brews in the West with both right-wing and left-wing identity politics elements. The dynamics favor the left thanks to decades of social engineering by both local and foreign, i.e. now defunct Soviet agents, where the left fails, as it has in the case of Gamergate, selective enforcement and institutional corruption is used to set a narrative that allows them to effectively bypass reality. The left is a chosen not out of preference of the elites, but because the logical conclusion is pure nihilism and complete chaos amongst the poor and middle class families in the United States without a quote-unquote cult of love. At the same time, the same mechanizations that favor the SJW narrative is used to cover up the international realities that ultimately affect global populations and citizens. The Western people will be locked in battles they believe are far more important to the future 
both of their nation and the world than what's really going on in Azerbaijan or Ecuador. These issues are indeed important, but only in context of the individual. War, war never changes. At the same time, the same mechanism that favors the SJW narrative will be used to cover up the international realities of the United States. This war, its military, and any protest against such will be an attack on the left. The Western people will be locked in battles they believe far more important than reality. What is the best way to fight back since we have multiple threats? Our own and foreign state governments and intelligence agencies psychologically operating against us. If we preemptively fight back, it might just be what Russia and China were wanting. If we don't, we are resigned to whatever decision our elites make that puts our survival as the primary win condition of the game. The best way to fight back is to force ourselves in that win condition. Firstly, we can do so through media, and that isn't limited to news. Media includes social media, movies, music, and video games. The second way is through education, but it's important to note that most effective way is to educate the young. Not those of our generation, but those older than us. This is when we accidentally found ourselves stuck in cogs running the system. When you look at the big picture, it's not hard to get overwhelmed how things relate to each other. But we have to go through one more step to understanding why a long-term project such as social engineering education can be possibly related to future civil war. Let's briefly consider what some might consider to be the best-case scenario of the international nuclear conflict outlined in parts 1 to 5. Russia and China fold. They accept all terms of surrender and conditions to the Western elite. There is a single monopoly of power and force in the world with an international surveillance operation run on every human being and censorship prevents revolts and wrong think. But unknown to the security apparatus, all the mechanizations would have worked to serve a dual purpose. The elites have as long as they need now to run social engineering programs and will naturally take a path that serves their interests alone. That as establishing political individuals as a priest class. A culture destroyed by social engineering would have effectively reduced the risk to the elite to zero and brought them back to feudalistic scenarios that heavily favors the establishment. Human populations will be treated as they always have been, as nothing more than cattle, and the traditional means of controlling a cattle, admitted in practically sized population, is implemented Thusly, all kinds of insane justifications are used to commit acts of mass barbarity or pure ignorance, each more insane than the last. 
just like in the Dark Ages, with a new religion being based on a slave morality of forgiveness to those who are abusing you and the establishments of religion putting the abusers in power. So it's enabling the abuse and it's empowering the abusers. All kinds of insane justification will be used to commit acts oh, sorry, uh, in the SJW cult, with the original sin being privilege and the only means of repentance being to listen, to believe those wishing to attack you or hate you. A brave new world utopia for the establishment, a hellish dystopia for left of the working class and the eradication of a middle landed class. In what some others might consider the worst case scenario, the West worst, Russia and China overstep the others some time after the missile defense shields are up and running. Misinformed about the effectiveness of the ABM system, a leader decides to launch a conventional strike against a high-value target, invade a territory controlled by the other state, or launch de-escalation strikes through the use of tactical nuclear weapons in order to force a peaceful conclusion of the conflict, to get to the other side by folding or admitting a bluff. Well, before the risk of nuclear war becomes a reality, the elite power base on both sides and their extended families, a.k.a. the society's best and brightest, as they will be called, will have secured their safety in the form of underground bunkers. The good news is that the majority of nuclear weapons will even take off from their bases or bunkers. Both sides worried about each other's nuclear stockpiles rather than annihilating each other's populations and urban centers, which are mostly unmilitarized, will target those alongside military bases and silos. The majority of nuclear weapons will be destroyed in their silos by the First Nation to launch their weapons. However, both sides have dedicated so many missiles that necessarily predate that some are aimed at urban populations. The bad news, regardless of the target, the radioactivity, the fallout will spread far and wide, destroying much of the soil relied on to obtain food throughout years and causing a nuclear winter. Life will be harsh for those living on the surface, while life will be uncomfortable and imprisoning underground. They won't have to worry about long-term damage to their genetics and offsprings, but logic predates that the outsiders will almost immediately attempt to break into the bunkers, creating, once again, a further civil war. Those with bunkers, those without bunkers. That's the two divisions. Haves, have-nots. Now, more than ever, an obsessive uh, motivation, mission to take bunkers, to, to get into the bunkers, to get the people who are in the bunkers and their supplies would obviously be the prime directive of all outside powers and individuals. The final... Part 11, Psychopolitics, Weaponizing the Youth. By the time the ABM systems has come up, those who are 11 to 13 years old today will be the young adults of society. 2015, 
if you were 11 years old seven years ago, you're 18 now. So I'm not I'm not entirely uh, wrong with that one. Those most able-bodied and generally healthy enough to survive a nuclear war are being conscripted into war. Should war come later, it will be the younger people. But regardless, all of them would be have went through years of Common Core education promoting authoritarianism and the SJW cult, and well acquainted with gamified training processes that reward narcissism and psychopathy. 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 How do you how do you pronounce that? Right. These people will be no threat to the elite who will remain safe in their bunkers as technocrats. They will be as docile as rabbits in a field, perhaps occasionally passive-aggressively attacking each other in civil revolts and riots, like race riots. Gone will be their sense of what real privilege or power is, and gone will be the independent survival of the tribe or community. Though that fails to develop when a child is overstimulated with psychopolitically designed educational games replacing traditional education. No more books. It's all going to be video games taught to teach people things. And there's not going to be any more tests or anything like that. Tests are now a video game. It'll be all digital. That has not come to pass yet. That has not come true yet. But that, that is a prediction of the future. Still wondering how Bill Gates can convince other elites in a single meeting about the merits of pooling their wealth together to use for the greater good? He's just letting them in on the bigger picture and whatever he has said to them convinced them to hand over a huge sum of their ill-gotten gains. What could be so important to these scumbags to do so? Does Zuckerberg strike you as an honest individual? Does he strike you as a good businessman? Promoting social justice censorship is one of the key elements to force the acceptance of Common Core and similar programs through public education. It has passed smoothly in Sweden and other eunuch nations, but they knew from the start that America would be tough to crack. That's why false flagging and media smear jobs are essential to setting the narrative required to force people to act against their own interests. When Five Guys Burgers and Fries was launched, it was hoped that they would be used in the same manner as Rantic Media attempted to use the leaked photos of Emma Watson during her failed UN speech. None could have predicted the transition of the Five Guys saga into Gamergate. Leak after leak, dig after dig, all you come close, very close to figuring out that there is going to on in your hobby. Some were brave and ventured out to see the same pattern repeated in the wider media as WikiLeaks recommended you do. This is when the media decided to preemptively attack and smear Gamergate, which was and still is largely a discussion platform for the New World Order. Essentially, knowing they were playing 4D chess with superior strategists, they flipped the table and defecated on it, then blamed you for your toxic misogyny of their actions distraction after distraction victim after victim the freaks come out and attack you for your dislike of them distracting everyone from the truth 
You might think that they've discredited themselves in front of us and in front of logical people, but in the end, they're not concerned about alienating the intellectual or the individual. What they are concerned about is you halting their program to turn their youth into censorship-loving, psychologically programmed, useless, submissive time bombs who believe the only issue to be concerned about is identity politics and who have been trained to defy their parents and disrespect any moral authority. As the plan goes, they will keep hashtag Gamergate alive with media assaults to generate lashback just long enough to use it as a justification to the very censorship they require to create a society unable to protest nuclear war. This achieves another objective as it brings your ability to do anything about the implementation of Common Core in public schools to a halt. Should they fail and should the public be woken up about the social engineering, importance of video games, and Common Core, they may have a backup plan still. I don't have enough information to see that far. Perhaps they will launch an interracial war to keep us busy and weak instead. 2015. 2015. Predicted all that shit. Although, to be honest, uh, the Ferguson riots were 2014. And I had um, firmly convinced myself that the militarization of the police was to force the civil war and a racial war elementation. It's very easy to fight a civil war when one person literally cannot take off their uniform if every single black person is considered a possible uh, you know, race rioter or antagonist, which would thus create even more rioters because you're persecuting now an entire race. The police literally are targeting a race. Get it? But still, remember that, 2015. Now, where are we? Oh, here you go. Taking a final look at things, the best way to teach, the best way to bond, the best way to entertain a child is through games. Nietzsche said man's maturity to have regained the seriousness that he is a child at play. That's why alternatives to educational games must be eliminated or polluted until they are unenjoyable, so that the children never grow up. The only games that will be acceptable are those that educate, quote-unquote, to the SJW propaganda. Otherwise, it will be a childish as gaming has grown up, an immersion of reality. Who should be in control of that game? The corrupt journalists, the money-grubbing developers, producing unchallenged trash to appeal to a larger market, the large studios who use sales figures and profit margins to control plot, and taxpayer-funded common core programs that produce the consumers with predictable tastes. It's important to note that as well as fighting an external struggle, we must also fight an internal one. We are a degenerate, socially engineered generation. We value individuality above all 
even at the cost of even our well-being. Ignore the importance of society and culture of all previous and past generations at the great failure and cost of our personal futures. We fail to value children as our ultimate goal and instead see them as objects of sexual desire to show off as baby photos to friends until abandoning them 12 or more years after brainwashing them. It is through no fault of our own our parents have failed us and we are placed in the checkmate position today. Without prospects of work, without even a bright future to look forward to, perhaps even a life to live. But there is still hope and it lies in our children. Maybe not our own biological, but our generational and societal or state's children. We will likely not see a bright future no matter what we do, but we must cleanse ourselves of our selfishness and our toxicity so that our children and their children's children may have that future. Rid yourself of nihilism and remember that no matter what happens in the end, if we protect, entertain, and educate our children, we are our precious future, however long it takes our children, their children, and their children's children will one day taste freedom and may one day thanks those that deserve it. So, that's the... That's the... Uh, that's the post. That was the post in 2015. And so, yeah. That's the post 2015 about nuclear war, internet, uh, social programming, the gameplay or game plan for the uh, NWO in terms of creating and fostering the Cold War 2.0 as early as 2006. The nuclear armament and the missile race that is currently holding the war, basically holding a loaded gun to the world's head. I mean, absolutely. Conditions of mutually assured destruction. And this was written by Insider Intel in 2015. So a lot of it has eerily already come to pass and is currently being created. So absolutely had to share that, had to kind of um, keep that alive at least in terms of a live uh, streaming and a live reading of it. It's as true as it was now as it was written back then. Anyone have any questions about that? Anyone have any questions about what I was reading and what was written? Let me read the comment section.
Okay, no questions. All right. All right, so everyone's happy, everyone's satisfied. So, as I got, fills in some of the missing pieces. All right, you guys uh, take care. You guys are the best audience out there in Dreamland. Now I'm saying shalom. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. Um, you know, you guys can follow me on Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. All one word, lowercase, link tree. Follow me on podpage.com slash beyond top secret types. And that's my website for my podcast. All that cool groovy shit. I need to fix my posture. I'm trying to fit in the fucking camera. Because if I do that, it's like, you know, like that. So I'll figure it out. But yeah, um, podcast is doing great. Recently got on to Apple uh, Pod Connect and then got to uh, uh, Audible. So if you guys like Audible, you can download the podcast through um, Apple Music or through Amazon Music through Audible. Um, podcast is on there right now. iHeartRadio, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, all that good shit. Um, you guys can find me on there. Link tree to all the social media. Find me while you can. Currently, the flagship is Instagram. Post there daily. A lot of videos, a lot of dark web videos, like cool shit like that. I'll come back on YouTube every once in a while, but I'll be monetized. So, basically, whenever I feel like recording and live stream recording, uh, dual casting, as I've mentioned and done before, recording the podcast currently, right now, killing two birds with one stone. So, yeah. Um, great to have you guys listening in. Great to have you guys um, tuning in on that for the broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Your host, Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. My pleasure and privilege to be doing so. God bless you guys. Peace out.